Why should you do what Scripture says? Many say you, you should not follow all biblical commands. Instead, you should evaluate each biblical command, asking, well, does this make sense for me, or does it not make sense? Will following this command make my life better, or will it not make my life better? And thus, you then pick and choose those parts of Scripture that are going to be most helpful to you. You follow those, and you label the others outdated or culturally determined or obsolete. Well, Jesus tells us to have quite a different approach from that. He says, John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Not, if you love me, assess my commandments. Or, if you love me, take each of my commandments as a suggestion, but if you love me, keep my commandments. And then in Matthew 28, the risen Jesus tells his disciples and through them us, Go, disciple all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, And then what? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. All that I've commanded you. That's what we've emphasized so far. But teaching them to observe. Not just teaching them the content of the commandments, but teaching them how to follow the commandments. How to obey him in their culture in their era, in their stage of life that they are at, teaching them to obey or observe all that Jesus commands. So Jesus puts a high priority on obedience. And Jesus links that obedience to love for him. Love for God, love for Jesus, leads to obedience. Obedience, biblically, is rooted in relationship. Indeed, all biblical commands flow out of a relationship with God. Remember the preface to the Ten Commandments. Before God says, you shall have no other gods before me, he says, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You are in relationship with me. Therefore, hear these commandments. So God has saved us. He has brought us to himself. And the biblical commands teach us what life in relationship to him looks like. How we are to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, as we read from Colossians 3. The commands tell us how we go about letting our light shine before others so that they see our good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. Furthermore, as I, John, pointed out last week from the book of Judges, 
We learn the commands by obeying the commands. That to learn a command is not just to memorize the words, but to step out in obedience. And then we learn what the command really entails. And thus Jesus knew the commands better than anyone because he never disobeyed them. Every step of obedience was teaching him obedience, teaching him the commands as The book of Hebrews tells us. As we live out the commandments, we learn more and more why they are important. We see change in us as we walk in God's ways, as we meditate on his commands. And Psalm 119 elaborates on this idea of walking in obedience to him And having that obedience in feedback lead us to love him more, to obey him more thoroughly. Well, after completing today's sermon, we'll be more than two-thirds of the way through Psalm 119, this longest chapter in all of Scripture. I had planned on eight sermons on the chapter, and I think that's what we're going to do. So three more after this. Recall I said that looking at this psalm over eight sermons is like looking at a beautiful mountain valley from different perspectives, right? You might back up real wide-angle lens and see the, get the overall impression of it. You might zoom in and look at the waterfall or look at the stream or look at particular trees. You might change the angle, go from the top of a ridge looking down, go down to the stream and take a picture. Every picture includes the same physical features, but they look different from different perspectives. So each of these eight sermons is looking at these truths from a somewhat different perspective. There's a lot of overlap, but we're drawing out different emphases each week. Let me briefly recall what we've seen so far in the first four sermons. The first sermon on verses 1 to 24 focused on how we are to seek Him, to seek His face. And along the way, I spoke of an analogy of a young woman, remember, who travels far away from her father. Her father has written these letters knowing he's not going to be able to communicate with her while she's on this journey, reminding her of who he is, how she can live, what her hope is. And she meditates on, she seeks her father, though he's apart from her, and looks forward to his promised return. Second sermon, verses 25 to 48, we focused on active dependence, how we are dependent on God, but that's not a passive dependence, just sitting back, letting things happen. But we are seeking him, as we spoke about in the first sermon, depending on him and his word, committing ourselves to action. And then... The third sermon, verses 49 to 72, the title was Think and So Follow. 
So we are to think about who God is, how we are living, what he has promised, and that leads us to obedience, it leads us to comfort, it leads us to praise, it leads us to love for his word. And then two weeks ago, verses 73 to 96, deep cries and solid hope, the stanza in the psalm, which is where the, where the psalmist is in the greatest trouble, and we began by looking at Jesus' cry from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we are to know he shaped us, he fashioned us, he is in control even of those great afflictions. And when we cry out to him, we're expressing our faith in the midst of that pain. And we are secure in his love even in the midst of those afflictions. Well, today, verses 97 to 120, love God and so love God's law. Three headings, one for each stanza, each eight-verse stanza. So verses 97 to 104, the beloved word must dwell in you richly, picking up on that phrase from Colossians 3. Then verses 105 to 112, the beloved indwelling word sustains and guides through trials. And then verses 113 to 120, the beloved indwelling word separates you from the world. The beloved word must dwell in you richly. The beloved indwelling word sustains and guides through trials. And the beloved indwelling word separates you from the world. So first... The beloved word must dwell in you richly, 97 to 104. Colossians 3.16 begins, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That word is an imperative. The verb is an imperative. So we could render this, the word of Christ must dwell in you richly. Verses 97 to 104 of this psalm tell us what a life is indwelt by the word looks like. It describes the dynamic, a logic that works within us when God's word dwells in us. We'll consider the steps in this dynamic, not in the order that they come up in the psalm, but in the logical order that they take place in our lives. And we'll see that this is a a cycle that feeds back on itself and encourages further progress in the cycle. So step one, there'd be six steps. Yes, six steps. Step one, God teaches us. Second half of 102, you have taught me. When we know God's word, it is God who has taught us. As Paul tells us, all scripture is breathed out by God. As Peter tells us, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, do you want to hear the voice of God? Open up his word. This is the word of God to you. He is teaching you in his Word. So God teaches you his word. That's the first step. Second step, we meditate 
on that word. Second half of 97. Your law is my meditation all the day. Second half of 99. Your testimonies are my meditation. So we think about God's word. We turn it over in our minds. We come back to it again and again during the day. We evaluate ourselves by his word. If the word is going to dwell in us richly, we have to do more than read it. Since we love God, since we love Jesus, since he has taught us, we are to meditate on his message. Thinking through, how does this, how do I apply this this day? What does this tell me about God? What does this tell me about myself? What does this tell me about the people around me? How can I praise God through this part of his word? How can I follow God more closely through this part of his word? We have to meditate on what he tells us. That's the second step. God teaches, we meditate. Third, We have the word always at hand. Second half of 98, your commandment is ever with me. I think the idea is even when we are not actively meditating on his word, the word is present. It's ready to be consulted. It's ready to be called upon when the need arises. And so Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century Pastor, commenting on this verse, says, As a soldier in battle must never lay aside his shield, so we must never have the word of God out of our minds. It's always ready. It's always prepared. It may not be at the forefront of our thoughts. It won't always be at the forefront of our thoughts. But we're ready to take it up and use it when the need Arises. That's why we, in Desiring God Community Church, we emphasize scripture memory. So that while you may not remember word for word everything that you memorize on Sunday, the 28th of August, year 2022, but we pray that five years from now, When you need that truth, those verses, it's still there. And you'll have the idea ready to use it. There's a story that uh, my father told me from some people he knew who were shot down in the Vietnam War, pilots, who were then in what they ironically called the Hanoi Hilton, the, uh, the prisoner of war camp where they put uh, American pilots. And they were not allowed. So some of them, some of the pilots had small portions of scripture with them, maybe a New Testament, New Testament Psalms, but those were taken away from them. They had no scripture. But those who were Christians helped one another to remember, and they dug back in their memories. And these prisoners were able to assemble a huge proportion of Scripture through what was deep down in their memory. 
and help one another. So one of them remembered one thing, another remembered another thing, and they had assembled a very large proportion of scripture. That's what we pray. So I encourage you, memorize, memorize God's word. So God teaches, we meditate, the word is always at hand, and fourth, we thereby gain understanding and wisdom. This is a key point, key repeated point in this stanza, beginning in 98. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, beginning in 99. I have more understanding than all my teachers, beginning at 100. I understand more than the aged, verse 104. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Now, I remember reading this section many, many years ago and thinking, well, this guy's kind of full of himself. And he says, I'm smarter than anyone who teaches me. I'm smarter than any old person I see, right? And it can, it can give a bit of a hint of that, but that's not what he's saying. That's not what he's saying. The point is, wow, I'm so much wiser than all these other people, yeah, 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 right? That's not what he's saying. The point is, God's enemies will never have wisdom, for they've rejected him and his word. If I know the word, and I meditate on it, if he's taught me, and if I always have it at hand, I have greater understanding than a teacher who only knows it academically, who only knows it as an object of study, right? because it's dwelling in me. It is changing me. I am obeying it, and thus I understand it better, again, as I, John, said last week. Similarly, if I know the word and I meditate on it and I have it at hand, I have greater understanding that an elderly person who has decades more experience than me, if that elderly person is not doing that, right? That's the point. He's not saying, I have greater understanding than any elderly person. But if I am going through this sequence, meditating, letting it dwell richly in me, then I have understanding, and that's available even to very young people, even to people who don't have much, lots, lots of academic knowledge. But they can have more understanding than someone who's highly intelligent, who studied it from afar, and it's not dwelling in them richly. So fifth step, God teaches us, we meditate, the word's always with us, we gain understanding and wisdom, and then we obey. Second half of 100, I obey, I keep your precepts. 101, I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. You know, each week I make suggestions to Amy or whoever is leading music about songs to sing. And I'll usually suggest nine or ten songs and we'll pick four or five from them. And so I was looking for songs talking about obedience. And you may have noticed we sang more older songs today. And what I'm finding, what I found, a little bit to my surprise, was that we have a lot of great songs that have been written in the last 20 years, but not many 
that are focusing on obedience. When I was growing up in our church, it seemed like half the songs were about obedience, right? And that can be a bad overemphasis, but there's also an issue if we don't talk about obedience very much. And so we had to reach back into some older songs. So teach me thy way, O Lord. Teach me thy way. So obedience flows from God's teaching, our meditation, the word being always with us, our gaining wisdom and understanding. It's important to note that, right? That obedience is not, you hear the command and then you do it. Obedience flows out of that relationship God, the confidence that God has taught you, turning it over in your heads, having it ready at hand, gaining that wisdom and understanding. And thus, the final step, six, we love God's law, we love him. Verse 97, oh, how I love your law. 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. This again is I. John's point from last week. We learn commands by doing commands. When we obey, we understand the commands better. We know God better. We thereby love him more and love his commands more. Furthermore, loving his law, we hate those paths that lead us astray. We are prone to wander, as I prayed. We know our tendency to wander, and so we develop a hatred for even the first steps on the path of wandering. And so, second half of 104, I hate every false way. I hate every wrong path that's going to lead me astray. So this is then the logical flow, but also, as I indicated, a cycle. That as we go through it, God teaching our meditation, our word always being with us, gaining wisdom and understanding, obedience, love for law, love for God's law, God himself. Well, then that prompts us to go back to the word for God to teach us more, meditate on it more, the word being with us that much more, gaining more and more wisdom and understanding and thus obedience and thus love for God and love for his word. And the cycle continues. It's a positive feedback relationship. That is how the word of Christ dwells in you richly. That is how we love Jesus and thus keep his commandments. So how are you doing in that? How are you doing in that? Are you growing in these ways? Is that positive cycle at work in your life? The body of Christ is here to help us all grow in that way, to grow in his word, to grow in Christ-likeness, to help that word dwell richly in us. So speak to each other, I encourage you, about this. 
after the service today, in small group this week. In this way, the Holy Spirit causes his fruit to grow within us, the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. As Paul tells us, against such things there is no law. If that's the characteristic of your life, if you're growing in those nine characteristics, those nine fruits, you're not violating God's law. You're fulfilling it. So the word must dwell in us richly. That's our first heading. Second heading, the beloved indwelling word sustains and guides us through trials. The beloved indwelling word sustains and guides us through trials. Verses 105 to 112. To go back to that mountain valley image, this stanza, the picture, is taken from a a similar place as the sermon on verses 25 to 48. This is about active dependence. So we're zooming in on the way that we are to depend on the word in the midst of trials and afflictions. And so we'll look at the trials, the word, our commitment, and then our pleas under this heading. Trials, the word, our commitment, and our pleas. So the trials... He doesn't go into a lot of detail about the trials, but we see it in three verses. Beginning of 107, I am severely afflicted. The beginning of 109, I hold my life in my hand continually, or as NET renders that, I am in continual danger. Beginning of 110, the wicked have laid a snare for me. So as the psalmist walks in God's ways, he is in danger from those who are rebels against God. And thus there's a temptation. Don't look too different from these other people. Don't stand out. Conform to them, and then maybe you won't be persecuted, you won't be harmed. Compromise on some of God's commandments. Could be simple, something as simple as dress or language or entertainment. It could involve taking a stand on an issue of the day, abortion, gender identity, education, any one of a number of things. It could be a temptation to compromise on an explicit biblical command. Lust, greed, love for the world, love for the things of this world. Have you felt such temptations? It's what Jesus talks about in his high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 14. Jesus praying to the Father, talking about his disciples. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. That's the trial we face. If we follow Jesus in this world, 
They persecute the master, they're going to persecute those who follow him. That should be our expectation. It should not be a surprise. And so there are trials and there are temptations. The word is the answer to that. So that's the second subheading here, the word. Verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. A lamp that just shows us where to put the next step down, where we place our foot next. So just shining on the rear, on the real near ground. And then a light to the path, a light shining further ahead, the headlights of a car on a dark road. Showing us the path where we should head. So, the idea we can pick up from what we saw in the first stanza, 97 to 104. Don't let trials and dangers force you off the path. Use the word as a light, as a guide, especially when we're tempted to conform. The word guards us, keeps us from wandering when we're prone to wander. So the third subheading, trials, then the word commitment. A lot of commitment in this stanza. The psalmist emphasizes his commitment to obey, to follow, when he's facing such temptations to wander. So 106, I have sworn an oath and confirmed it. To keep your righteous rules. A strong commitment that he makes. He knows he's going to face temptation. He doesn't need to make the commitment if he's not going to be tempted to violate those rules. But he swears an oath to keep those righteous rules. Then 108 Beginning of 108, if we were to translate that literally, it says, Accept the free will offerings of my mouth. The ESV thinks that free will offerings of my mouth refer to praise. So they put the word praise in there. But I think as another commentator suggests, that in 108, the psalmist is hearkening back to what he said in 106. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it. Those are the words of my mouth. My oath to keep your righteous rules. And that then is the free will offerings of my mouth. And so, his offering is that commitment, that oath to follow the rules. Second half of 109, I do not forget your law. Second half of 110, I do not stray from your precepts. Verse 112, I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. Remember verse 36, which a lot of us have memorized. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. A prayer to God to incline our hearts to his testimonies. So he's already prayed that. 
And now he says, I incline my heart. We ask God to do it, and we take responsibility for doing it. Again, this is active dependence. I incline my heart. So my heart, my desires inside me are not exogenous to me, right? They're not exogenous to my control. I take an oath to follow God's righteous rules, and therefore I incline my heart to follow him, asking God to do that work, to change my heart, to desire to follow him. So even in affliction, even when tempted, we are living out the word dwelling richly in us. So that's the commitment, fourth, last subheading here after the trials, the word, the commitment, then our pleas. Second half of 108, teach me your rules. I think the idea is, I've been so afflicted. Teach me more and more, more and deeper and deeper understanding of your rules. Through this affliction, teach me even more. Enable me to obey now so that I can understand you even better in the years ahead when other trials and afflictions come. 107, second half, give me life O Lord, according to your word. This is going to be our focus two sermons from now. But again, he's saying, this is where true life is found, in following you in your word. So fulfill your promise. Sustain me. Indeed, make me thrive in the midst of this trial, this affliction, so I might know you better, love you more, shine with your light. So our first heading today, the beloved word must dwell in you richly. This second heading, the beloved indwelling word, sustains and guides you through trials. The third, last heading, the beloved word separates you from the world. Verses 113 to 120. Again, think of... John 17, verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. We, as people of Jesus, are separate from the world. We know true life is found apart from what most people seek in this world. And so we are to live in light of those truths. Well, that's what the psalmist focuses on in this stanza, beginning at 119. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross, like waste matter, like what what is of no importance. Verse 118 You spurn all who go astray from your statutes, for their cunning is in vain. That last phrase 
is rendered by another commentator in his footnote. Their deceitfulness reveals how false they are to you. God rejects those who rebel against him. And so, the psalmist has the same attitude as God, as he should. Beginning of 113, I hate the double-minded, or as NET renders that, I hate those with divided loyalties. Verse 115, depart from me, you evildoers, why? That I may keep the commandments of my God. Okay, This is the same dynamic that we found in the book of Judges that I, John, was talking about last week. By the way, this wasn't planned, but there's a huge amount of overlap between I, John's sermon last week and this one. The point for the Israelites in the promised land and the point for us today is not never interact with people except those who are among God's people. If we did that, we would never disciple all nations, right? But the influence needs to go from the word to you, to those who don't know God. Not the opposite way. And if we are giving in to temptation to conform to the world, then we need to separate. Put our priorities straight. We are called as light in a dark place. But if the light in us is darkness, how great is that darkness, says Jesus. But to live in the world without being of the world is a great challenge. And so verse 114, you are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. I need that protection. That place of security, that truth. Verses 116 and 117, the center of this stanza, highlighted by the literary form that he uses. Uphold me according to your promise that I may live and let me not be put to shame in my hope. Hold me up, same idea, right? Uphold me, hold me up, that I may be safe and have regard for your statutes continually. So we need that assistance from God. If we get overly confident and think, oh yeah, I can deal with this darkness of the world, I can deal with these temptations, that's what comes before a fall. And so we need to pray like the psalmist prays. Uphold me, lift me up. Keep me with you. Hold on to me tightly. And then verse 120, which is the bottom line. My flesh trembles for fear of you. And I am afraid of your judgments. Why? Why fear? We've just said that all of this flows out of Confidence in a loving relationship with God. We're already in relationship to Him. So why does the psalmist express this fear? Why, particularly when he's talked about how sweet the Word is to his taste, how he loves God's law? 
Remember what Jesus says in Matthew 10. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, what? Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. If you prove to be a rebel, you should fear God's judgment. For you joined the opposition. You joined the other side. But if you are in Christ, if you hate sin, if you're living a life of repentance, if you're praying, God, see if there be any grievous way in me, lead me in the way everlasting, you have nothing to fear. So don't fear man. God is sovereign. He is in control. Do fear God. Fear, that is, losing your way. Fear going on that wrong path. Fear becoming a rebel. Fear, as Paul said, becoming tested and rejected after he's preached to others being rejected himself. If we are conforming to the world, then we are fearing man instead of God. So we are to trust that God is for us in Christ and fear stepping away from him. I believe it's in Pleasures of God, John Piper uses the analogy of a man on a glacier in Greenland. There's a huge storm and you're standing, barely standing on this ice and storm blows around. There are these 50 mile an hour winds and you're in great danger of just falling down to this crevasse and losing your life. So you're fearful. But then you spy a little ice cave. You're able to get in it. You're now protected from the elements. You're no longer in any danger. But you're looking out at the storm and the storm is still very impressive. Very awe-inspiring. So you're not Fearful of what the storm might do to you, but you're still seeing the power, the majesty of that storm. That's the idea of fear when we are secure in him. And no, I can't step out of this ice cave. If I do, I'm in great danger. We can't step out of God's way, step off of God's path. If we do, we should be fearful. Well then, in conclusion, verse 97, oh how I love your law. We have even more reason to love God's word than the psalmist had. For now, the word tells us so much more than he knew about Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, God become man. He is our Savior, our Master, our King. And the Word tells us 
how we are to glorify him in this life. What it means for us to live like him. So love him. Love Jesus. And so keep his commandments. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Lean on that word so that you might endure through trials and temptations to conform to the world or to deviate from his path. Be separate from the world, not loving the world or the things in the world, but shining God's light into the darkness of the world around you. And when you fail, for we will fail, turn, repent, quickly, immediately. Pray for forgiveness and commit yourself, as the psalmist does, to know God's word, to meditate on it, to hold on to it, to obey it, and thereby grow in the fruit of the Spirit taking on the character of Jesus. In this way, we can shine the light of the gospel on those who are walking in darkness around us, as well as in the lives of hurting and needy followers of Jesus. And this is why God has us here. This is why God doesn't just save us and take us out of this life. He leaves us here as lights, as candles in the darkness, so that his light, his character, is shown in the world around us. And then he works through us to fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory as the waters cover the sea. That is your purpose. That is why we are here. And so, love Jesus. Love his word. Turn to him and find life. Let's pray together.